1983, the British poet Ted Hughes, who lived from 1930 to 1998, he published a collection of poems called River, simply that word, River. But if you go looking in his collected poems, you'll notice that the original title for it would have been October Salmon, River Poems and Photographs. And what I'd like to do tonight is the same thing I did a few weeks ago with Hughes's collection, Moortown Diary. I'd like to replace a very early episode in this podcast devoted to the collection called River with a more expanded episode, more poems, audio from Hughes himself, as well as comments from Hughes on the writing of the book and on the poems. And I think the best way to do that is to start with the poem that he almost made the title poem, because I do think it is perhaps his best single poem. It's the one that I have spent the most time trying to memorize, and it is the one that is, at least for me, the most the most endless and the most vivid and the most uh, beautiful, really. So let's take a listen here first, because if you, uh, you'll know by the end of this poem whether you want to listen to the rest of the episode. So let's listen here to Ted Hughes, I think in 1985 or 1986 at the 92nd Street Y in New York City, reading his wonderful poem called October Salmon. He's lying in poor water, a yard or so depth of poor safety. Maybe only two feet under the no protection of an outleaning small oak, half under a tangle of brambles. After his 2,000 miles, he rests, breathing in that lap of easy current in his graveyard pool. About six pounds weight, four years old at most, and a bare winter at sea, but already a veteran, already a death-patched hero. So quickly, it's over. So briefly he roamed the gallery of marvels. Such sweet months, so richly embroidered into Earth's beauty dress, her life robe, now worn out with her tirelessness, her insatiable quest, hangs in the flow, a frayed scarf. An autumnal pod of his flower, the mere hull of his prime, shrunk at shoulder and flank, with a seagoing aurora borealis of his April power, the primrose and violet of that first upfling in the estuary ripened to muddy dregs, the river reclaiming his sea metals. In the October light, he hangs there, patched with leper cloths. Death has already dressed him in her clownish regimentals, her badges and decorations, mapping the completion of his service, his face a ghoul mask, a dinosaur of senility, and his whole body a fungoid anemone of canker. Can the caress of water ease him? The flow will not let up for a minute. What a change from that covenant of polar light to this shroud in a gutter. What a death in life to be his own specter. His living body become death's puppet. Dulled by death, 
in her crude paints and drapes. He haunts his own staring vigil and suffers the subjection and the dumbness and the humiliation of the role. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there under the scrubby oak tree hour after hour. That is what the splendor of the sea has come down to. And the eye of ravenous joy, king of infinite liberty in the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life on the surge ride of energy, weightless, body simply the armature of energy. In that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life, the salt mouthful of actual existence with strength like light. Yet this was always with him. This was inscribed in his egg. This chamber of horrors is also home. He was probably hatched in this very pool. And this was the only mother he ever had, this uneasy channel of minnows under the mill wall with bicycle wheels, car tires, bottles, and sunk sheets of corrugated iron. People walking their dogs trail their evening shadows across him. If boys see him, they will try to kill him. All this, too, is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. Thank you. And I could just listen to uh, Ted Hughes reading that poem all day long. I don't know of any other poet who has written something quite like that about death and about nature and about animals. And also, uh, as it turns out, uh, about his own father. If you go looking in Jonathan Bates' biography of Ted Hughes, uh, he was able to uh, dig out a, a, a remark from an interview that, that Hughes gave just before the end of his life, actually, where he's talking about this poem, October Salmon. And this is what Hughes had to say about it in that interview. He says, I had gone to visit my father, who was very ill at the time, and I stopped by a nearby Salmon River. This was in the autumn, in the early 1980s. And from a bridge, I saw this one fish, a little cock salmon, lying motionless in the clear, shallow water. The only fish in a long pool that in October 1961, when I first walked there and counted the fish waiting to spawn in the gravels above and below, had held more than a hundred. I don't know if he'd spawn, but anyway, this poem was about him. And Jonathan Bate goes on to say, uh, these were the last words of one of Hughes's last interviews published posthumously in the fishing magazine called Wild Steelhead and Salmon. And how many poets out there, just a, just a question for my listeners, how many poets out there do you know who are being interviewed regularly in fishing magazines? Well, Hughes had a great interest in fishing and wildlife and in environmental concerns, and he spent a lot of the 1980s uh, trying to use what name and fame he had 
to uh, to kind of put those things um, before the public more than they were at the time. And Jonathan Bate goes on to say that the dying fish of October salmon, resting after his 2,000-mile journey home, stitched into the torn richness of the world, is ineluctably associated not only with a past when Sylvia Plath was still alive, his late wife, and when Devon life was a fresh dream, because Hughes grew up in Devon, but also with the entropy of all things, and also with his dying father, the, quote, epic poise of the salmon held steady in his wounds and loyal to his doom is also that of Bill Hughes, Ted Hughes's father. And what I'd like to do now is, because I think this is a, a poem that I've read here many, many times, at least four times, and I'm just going to include an earlier recording of me reading it. This is also one of my favorite poems of Ted Hughes, and it is simply called uh, Four March Watercolors. And when I get into the uh, publication history of the book, um, one thing I'll say is that uh, in the in the republication of the book that Ted Hughes did in 1993, he removed the poem for March Watercolors along with, I think, eight other poems. And I can only guess why, because this is one of the most beautiful uh, descriptions of spring that I know. So let's just listen to that poem right now. This is for March Watercolors. Earth is just unsettling her first faint sense. My shadow, soft-edged on drying pale sand, among baby nettles, where flood water whirled and sowed it. The blue is a daze of bubbly fire, naked, ushering and nursing of electricity with caressings of air. Earth, mud-stained, stands in sparkling beggary. Bergs of old snow drifts, still stubborn in shadows. The river acts fishless. It is fully occupied with its calisthenics, its twistings and self-wrestlings. The pool by the concrete buttress has just repaired its intricate engine, now revs at full bore underground under my foot sole, tries to split the foundations, running in, testing and testing. Spring is over there. Tits exciting the dour oak, Cows soften their calls into the far, crumble-soft calling of ewes. The land hangs tremulous. It pays full attention to each crow-caw, turning full face to the entering, widening, flame-cord, burrowing havoc of a jet. Wild, stumpy daffodils shiver under the shock wave. Nearly a warmth edging this wind, a skylark, solitary, glittering high out over the buoyant upboil, a spice particle from the tumbled-out, hump-backed, bursting bales of river. Spring just hesitates. She can't quite say what she feels yet. She's numb and pale, but she's here and looking at everything 
first morning of real convalescence. The river is hard at it, tries and tries to wash and revive a bedraggle of dirty bones, primitive, radical engine of Earth's renewal, a solution of all dead ends, an all-out evacuation to the sea, all deaths of wings and fronds of eyes, nectar, roots, hearts, returning, cancelled to solvency, back to the sea's big rethink. While the field full of novelty lambs, suns and sprawls mid-morning, high-headed happy, supposing here is a goodness that will stay forever, a blue tit de-rusts its ratchet. We trees, we tall ones, sunning, somewhat mutilated, inured by one more winter to this muddy, heedless earth and to our scaly, provisional bodies. Relax, enjoy the fraternity of survival, even a hope of new leaf. The river concentrates its work, its wheels churn, foam at the pool tail blazes tawny, thrashing tight blown flames, bleeding the valley older. An inch of snow whitened last night, and the world slipped back under. This morning, touch precarious snow fledged all complexities of trees and perfected fields. By noon the earths absorbed it. A ewe, steep-spined, is lowering herself to the power coils of the river's bulge to replenish her udder. And a big-thumbed buzzard swirls to a stall over the woodtop opposite, mewing, now settling, heavy with domestic purpose. Clouds lift anchors. The world tries its weight. All these branches are jammed solid with confidences. A market of gossip. A spider has found me. The river epic rehearses itself, embellishes afresh and afresh each detail. Baroque superabundance, earth mouth brimming, but the snow melt is an invisible restraint. If there are salmon under it at all, they are in a coma. They are stones lodged among stones, sealed as fossils under the grained pressure. I look down onto the pour of melted chocolate. They look up at a guttering lamp through a sandstorm boil of silt that scratches their lidless eyes, fumes from their gill petals. They have to toil, trapped face workers, and their holes of position under the mountain of water. Up here, a lightness breathes, a morning sleep lightness a glow on the closed eyelids, or seen through the wet cracks of eyelashes, a crammed and jostly pushing of crow-tended, buzzard-adjusted germination. Now only hour after hour of the sweating, speechless labor of trees, and the long ropes of light hauling the river's cargo, the oldest commerce. And again, every time I read that, um, 
I just get I just get chills, or I simply just smile. Um, who has written nature poetry quite like that, other than I guess uh, William Wordsworth? But as I said, uh, the book was first published in 1983, and it was. The earliest edition included photographs, and then it was published simply on its own uh, by uh, Faber and Faber. But then, in 1993, he, uh, Ted Hughes sort of took the opportunity to cut nine poems, add 13, and sort of reorder things, and it appeared alongside two other collections in a book called, in a collection called Three Books. And for whatever reason, Ted Hughes's greatest uh, collections, at least the ones that seem that way to me, have this strange kind of history to it. Uh, in a few weeks, I'll read parts of his collection called uh, Remains of Elmet, which was also first published privately, and then with photographs, and then without photographs, and then sort of reordered and edited again. Uh, the collection I read from two weeks ago was published privately and then sort of uh, buried and surrounded by other poetry by Faber and Faber in the early 80s, I believe. And only later, only in 1993 again, was it uh, published um, on its own with notes and you sort of saw the whole thing. Uh, Hughes was someone who maybe didn't quite know what he had done and maybe didn't know what he did even after he died. Um, with these collections, and so they sort of have this weird second and third and fourth lives, but we're lucky to have all of them now. If you go looking at both the collected poems and in the separate edition of River, you will find um, not just the poems that he cut, uh, put back in, but also the additional 13 ones that he added as well. To get a sense of what the whole book is like, we can look at what Jonathan Bates said about the entire collection. He says, many of the river poems are about life and death, struggle and rebirth, purification by water, but also the ache of loss. The leading image is that of a salmon run, the journey upstream to spawn. From the first poem on obstetric procedures in a salmon farm, to the very last, on salmon eggs, the volume teems with sperm and egg, intricately exploring the mechanics of breeding. Fish stock mattered to Hughes, the angler, and the biology of salmon fascinated Ted, the father of Nicholas Hughes, who was destined to become one of the world's leading experts on the subject. But at a deeper level, the story of the river and the cycles of aquatic life gave him an opportunity to come indirectly at his own feelings about those raw essentials of human life, identified by T.S. Eliot's character called Sweeney, which are birth and copulation and death. And so we can read that very first poem in the collection, the one that is about salmon eggs. Let's find it here. And the book is dedicated to his son, who became uh, a, uh, a marine biologist, I think is what he said. And uh, many of the poems also recall fishing trips that he took with his son uh, in Alaska. But this is the very first poem called Salmon Eggs. 
the salmon were just down there, shivering together, touching at each other, shedding themselves for each other. Now, beneath flood murmur, they peel away deathwards. January haze, with a veined yolk of sun. In bone-damp cold, I lean and watch the water, listening to water till my eyes forget me, and the piled flow supplants me, the mud blooms, all this ponderous light of everlasting collapsing away under its own weight. Mastodon ephemera, mud-curdling, bulldozing, hem-twinkling, caesarean of heaven and earth, unfelt, with exhumations and delirious advents, catkins wriggle at their mother's abundance, the spider clings to his craft. Something else is going on in the river, more vital than death. Death here seems a superficiality of small scaly limbs, parasitical, more grave than life, whose reflex jaws and famished crystals seem incidental to this telling, these tidings of plasm, the melt of mouthing silence, the charge of light, dumb with immensity. The river goes on sliding through its place, undergoing itself in its wheel. I make out the sunk foundations of dislocated crypts, a bedrock, time-hewn, time-riven altar. And this is the liturgy of Earth's advent, harrowing, crowned, a travail of raptures and rendings, perpetual mass of the waters, wells from the cleft. This is the swollen vent of the nameless teeming inside atoms, and inside the haze, and inside the sun, and inside the earth. It is the font, brimming with touch and whisper, swaddling the egg. Only birth matters, say the river's whirls. And the river silences everything in a leaf-moldering hush where sun rolls bare, and earth rolls, and mind condenses on old haws. And we can go directly into another poem called August Salmon. This is what that poem says. Upstream and downstream the river's closed, summer wastes in the pools, a sunken calendar unfurls, fruit ripening as the petals rot. A hold-up gangster, he dozes, his head on the same stone, gazing towards the skylight, waiting for time to run out on him. Alone in a cellar of ash roots, the bridegroom, mortally wounded by love and destiny, features deforming with deferment. His beauty bleeding invisibly 
from every lift of his gills. He gulps, awkward in his ponderous regalia, but his eye stays rapt, elephantine, arctic, a god, on earth for the first time, with the clock of love and death in his body. Four feet under weightless, premature leaf crisps, stuck in the sliding sky, sometimes a wind wags a bramble up there. The pulsing, tiny trout, so separately faded, glue themselves to the stones near him, his tail frond, the life root, fondling the poor flow, stays him on the torpedo launch of his poise. Sleeked ice, a smear of being over his anchor shadow. Monkish, caressed, he kneels, he bows in the ceaseless gift that unwinds the spool of his strength. Dusk narrows too quickly. Manic, depressive, unspent, poltergeist anti-gravity spins him in his pit, levitates him through a fountain of plate glass, reveals his dragonized head. The march flanks ice flow soul flash rotted to a muddy net of bruise, flings his coil at the remainder of light, red, black, and nearly unrecognizable. He drops back, helpless with weight, tries to shake loose the riveted skull and its ghoul decor, sinks to the bed of his wedding cell, the coma waiting for the execution and death in the skirts of his bride. There we are. Now, we find two of his comments here. Here's some good comments. The first is uh, from a letter that he wrote to his friend Keith Sagar. Let me see here. And this is his description of being in Alaska. You get the sense that uh, that is where uh, Ted Hughes really wanted to be, if he could possibly live there his entire life. And for readers who are interested, or listeners who are interested, there's um, perhaps the longest single poem of his that I know of, uh, called the Golkana, which is named after a river in Alaska, um, is also included in River. And he says somewhere in his letters that he never spent more time or just uh, energy on, on a single poem other than the Golkana. And um, it's never been quite a hit with me, but simply for that reason, maybe it is worth looking at for others. And it gives you a sense of what he was able to find in a place like Alaska, especially when he is there uh, with his son, uh, Nicholas. This is from a letter from July 16th, 1980, where Ted Hughes says this, Alaska was everything I had hoped. Everything happened, I wanted to happen, and a whole lot more. We caught salmon until we were actually sick of catching them. We got ourselves off Great Lakes, living time, five minutes of immersion so cold. 
by the skin of our teeth two or three times. We fished alongside bears, lay awake listening to wolves, and generally sleepwalked through that dreamland. Unearthly valley of flowers between snow mountains, miles of purple lupins, 300,000 people in a country the size of all of Europe, mostly new residents fleeing from the States for one of several usual reasons, a picked lot of dreamers, escapists, self-elected Red Indians, hoodlums, and generally infatuated freedom addicts. It is extraordinarily free, but the Americans are there like migrants resting in transit, a very shallow hold, and the Indians and Eskimos are gradually getting all their claims back. Interesting. Keep well, Ted. And elsewhere, a few pages later, he says this. He's talking about these river poems and arranging them and putting them into, into his book. He says, I am in danger with my natural history of moving into a confinement as with poems about architectural styles or horticultural rarities. He's worried he will just be backing himself into a corner and be able to not stop himself from writing poems <laughs> about fish. But you can be happy that he spent as much time as he did on them. And then much later, toward the end of his life, writing to, I believe, to Keith Sagar again. This is in uh, July of... Um, July of 1998, he says, um, and he's talking, this is in the context of the publication of his book, Birthday Letters, which finally gave, I guess, uh, a public space for him to talk about his marriage with Sylvia Plath, which he avoided doing for many reasons for more than 30 years. Um, he says, uh, I see now that any traumatic event, if writing is your method, has to be dealt with deliberately. An image has to be looked for consciously and then mined to the limit, but not in autobiographical terms. My high-minded principle was simply wrong for my own psychological and physical health. It was stupid. The public interference later was just bad luck, though it deflected me into the collections, season songs, Moortown, Godete, River, Elmet, Cave Birds, etc. Lots of things I am glad to have gotten down. And I've talked here before many times about the way every decade or so Ted Hughes would look back and, and say, you know, something like, oh shit, I just was distracted for the last decade, writing these little collections that don't mean very much to me when I should have been doing X thing. So after Birthday Letters was published, he did the same thing. I should have been doing this for the last 30 years. I should have found a way to simply do straight autobiography. I wish I had done that. Um, he is saying that at first, uh, what he thought he should be doing was latch onto the image and mine it to the limit, but not use autobiography. Um, and he realized that that way of handling things, of handling myth and autobiography and nature, um, in, in a not uh, in a non-confessional way, you might say, that at least gave him 
uh, that at least deflected him into some of his best collections, which for me are Moortown Diary, River, the one I'm reading from tonight, and The Remains of Elmet, as well as Crow, which I'll also be doing an episode on. So you can at least see that he he has some perspective on what he was able to do in the past. He at least realized that those collections were achievements in themselves, even if in 1998 and so near his own death, he wonders if maybe he could have done straight autobiography um, a little bit sooner. Let's go back to the poems now, though. Let's see what we have. Here we are. This is a poem called The River. The river fallen from heaven lies across the lap of his mother, broken by world. But water will go on, issuing from heaven, in dumbness uttering spirit brightness through its broken mouth. Scattered in a million pieces and buried, its dry tombs will split at a sign in the sky, at a rending of veils. It will rise in a time after times, after swallowing death and the pit, it will return stainless for the delivery of this world. So the river is a god, knee-deep among the reeds, watching men, or hung by the heels down the door of a dam. It is a god, and inviolable, immortal and will wash itself of all deaths. We might take a break there and look again at remarks in two of his, two of his letters. Let's see here. Here he is in June of 1992, uh, describing uh, fly fishing. Um, to his editor at Faber and Faber, and the same person who ended up editing his book of letters as well. He says, dry fly fishing is a psychologically determined activity, making slight understatements at the surface in hope of interesting the organic mysteries and terrors in the depth. Attitude of detachment. Actually, the concession of a basic reluctance to get involved. The English art, which explains why it became identified with the class stratifications that it did. On the most elite trout streams in Hampshire, etc., fishing with a lure, an imitation nymph or something of the sort, beneath the surface is actually forbidden. It is not done. It corresponds quite closely, culturally, to typical attitudes to poetic form, this regime of the dry fly. On the other hand, when it works, it can be the most fun. For trout, it is definitely more fun. And this apparently came about talking about the putting together the reissue of the collection called River. And a little later, he says, I wonder what you'll make of this comment of his. 
He says, uh, the point is, I have never really felt much interest in objective descriptive writing for its own sake, or in writing about anything that I couldn't regard as the, quote, dramatization of a purely internal psychodrama. The nearest I have come to that is in the diary pieces about farming that I collected in the volume titled Moortown, that is Moortown Diary, and in some of the pieces in River, and in some of the portraits about relatives, which are in the remains of Elmet. And I wonder what you make of that, unless I'm misunderstanding what he's saying. Uh, he is claiming that the poems I read a few weeks ago in Moortown Diary, and the ones that I read here tonight, are the only times that he has given way to what he calls uh, objectively describing something for its own sake and not seeing it as an excuse to dramatize a purely internal psychodrama. Um, I don't know how you can uh, listen to the poems that I've read tonight and not assume that there isn't something else, uh, excuse the pun, going on underneath the surface. They are great descriptions of something that is literally happening, literally fishing, literally describing the fish that you're seeing. But very clearly, especially in October Salmon, um, he's talking about uh, a great deal else other than just the river or just his memories or whatever it is. Um, and so I just find it extremely interesting that he would say that. I want to see who he sent this to. This was a letter to a a letter to a scholar who was writing a book about him. I just found it interesting that he would say that about his about his own work. Let's see if I done all the comments. I think that I have. Let's see how many poems we have left here. All right, we have one poem left here, and why don't we preface that with the remark that Hughes made um, when the book was reissued in 1993. Um, this is the way he described the book. This is the way he introduced the book in a note at the back of it. He says, It is not easy to separate the fascination of rivers from the fascination of fish, Making dams, waterfalls, water gardens, water courses is deeply absorbing play for most of us. But the results have to be a home for something. And when the water is wild, inhabitants are even more important. Streams, rivers, ponds, lakes, without fish, communicate to me one of the ultimate horrors, the poisoning of the wells, death at the source of all that is meant by water. I spent my first eight years beside the West Yorkshire River called Calder, in which the only life was a teeming bankside population of brown rats. But the hillside streams and the canal held fish, including, in the canal, big but rare trout. These preoccupied me, as a lifeline might. And later on, in South Yorkshire, the farm, which was for years my playground, was bounded on one side by the River Don, which drained the industrial belt between Sheffield and Doncaster, a river of such concentrated, steaming, foaming poisons 
that an accidental ducking was said to be fatal. My lifeline there was an old oxbow of the dawn, full of fish and waterfowl. And one day in the early 1940s, I saw all the fish in this lake bobbing their mouths at the surface, the beginning of the end, as it turned out. That same day, I noticed a strange, ruddy vein in the ditch water that drained from the farm buildings, two or three hundred yards away, and I registered a new smell. I traced the vein to a big stone shed packed with sodden, dark-stained grass, reeking the new smell. It was the first silage. And I can really see, coming to the end of this episode, uh, what a triptych his three books are, River, Moortown Diary, and Remains of Elmet, which all kind of can be taken almost as one poem, almost as a single work. Um, it's quite remarkable what he was able to do here. But I will just read one last poem. I say that because even even the notes he puts to the poems in these books just echo um, off of each other. But let's end the night with this poem. It's called In the Dark Violin of the Valley. All night, a music like a needle sewing body and soul together and sewing soul and sky together and sky and earth together and sewing the river to the sea. In the dark skull of the valley, a lancing, fathoming music, searching the bones, engraving on the glassy limits of ghost and an entanglement of stars. In the dark belly of the valley, a coming and going music, cutting the bedrock deeper to earth nerve, a scalpel of music, the valley dark, wrapped, hunched over its river, the night attentive, bowed over its valley, the river crying a violin in a grave, all the dead singing in the river, the river throbbing, the river, the aorta, and the hills unconscious with listening.